So how, on God's gray earth, did this... And this... And even this. People try to put us to down. Talking about my generation. Just because we get around. Talking about my generation. Things they do look awful. Talking Become this. Detours and Outliers, the podcast where we take a closer look at that one album in an artist discography that sticks out like a sore thumb. It may be their best album, or it may be their worst album, but either way, it's that one album where they were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. Just a reminder, we are on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher and Spotify, so if you could rate, review, and subscribe, that lets us know you are alive. We're also on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, so if you want to talk shit to us, you can do it to our digital faces. Anyway, this week on the panel we have... Matthew Marr. Logan Renard. And my name is Scott Livingston, and we have a special guest this week, local Who expert and the baritone guitarist for such acts as the Cadillacs and the New Ancient Astronauts, Casey Elkington. Say hi to everyone. Hi, everyone. Everyone says hi back. Um, this week, since we do have the Who expert in the Who house, we are going to be discussing the Who's second album, A Quick One. So, um, what makes this album different from other Who albums? Other than it sucks? Um, well, that's, that's one. <laughs> by comparison, of course. <laughs> by comparison. This apparently, there was a edict brought down by whom? I don't know that even though they have one good songwriter in the band, everyone should write two tracks for this album. Do you know whose idea that was or why? Um, uh, Kit Lambert, he was the experimental one of the band and, and he thought everybody should be represented uh, in, in their own songwriting and what they ended up with was pretty sad. Yeah, it, it certainly looks like pulling teeth. Roger couldn't even come up with two songs. <laughs> <laughs> he could barely come up with one. Yeah, I, I don't think he has any other credits. He may have like written one B-side other than that in the entire catalog. Um, to my knowledge, he helped write any way, anyhow, anywhere. But Helped. <laughs> uh, what that means exactly, I do not know. He did not complain when the song was brought to him. <laughs> His name is on it, that's all. That yeah, I and I think um, Keith Moon's... Uh, contribution to Tommy, the 
the Sleepaway Camp song was uh, not really written by him either, apparently. So it was simply his idea. Yeah, he, he didn't did, actually compose anything. When did Tommy come out? '69. So that was about oh, okay. three years after this one came out in '66. It's or, amazing how fast they developed. Yeah, yeah. Well, Mooney Mooney hadn't completely gone off the deep end. He quite yet. He hadn't made enough money to drink enough beer <laughs> to yeah. quite get there, but yes, you can... Yeah, and so we... It's, uh, champagne and brandy, I think. Yeah. <laughs> and lots of pills. Yeah. Lots and lots of pills. And I mean, it. we did discover that Entwistle could write a couple of tunes, so it wasn't a complete failure as an experiment, but... John's songs are great. Yeah. I'm glad that they're peppered throughout the, the catalog, but there's he, some things going on on this album. The that, impression I got from him that he... Uh, he, he um, um, I, I think he was a good songwriter. I, I think yeah. he just didn't particularly, look, he said, we already got one. Why do we need another one? Exactly. It could have well, been a bit of laziness. I don't know. Well, he sort of had like the, the same ratio that George had on the Beatles albums or Dave had on the Kinks albums. And it's nice to break it up, you know, get three songs from Pete and then eh, an Ant Whistle song to sort of change things up. It's not a bad thing. But yeah, the other two clearly didn't want to write songs. So, um. And, I mean, Pete had plenty of material at this time. I mean, 66, they put out how many singles that didn't end up on this album? Uh, the singles should have been ended up on the album, and the songs that they kept for the record should have been on the B-sides of the other singles. But yeah, that, that is usually opinion. where you put the other band. The Ringo songs is on B-sides, but we got them on this album instead. Um, I mean, when this album came out in the U.S., they even kicked a song off to put a single on because they knew that would sell the album a little better. Happy Jack, right? Happy Jack, yeah. yeah so in replacement of uh, Heat, Heat Wave, yeah, that screams. was. They have a cover on here, which I mean, a lot of bands had covers early in their career, and this is still early in their career. But they had already moved past. It was a little early, though, you know, because um, Linda Ronstadt, I think, played that a little better. It, most people played it better. Not that they did a bad job; it's just not really their. Um, well, I just meant she waited long enough for it to. Yeah, yeah. You know. I know that the mods really dug on Motown and stuff like that, but uh, boy, that's a that's a dare, it's a daring one to cover like a Motown song when Motown is still contemporary <laughs> and the shit. You're probably gonna just make a limb version of it because. Well, before they were writing original materials, they were doing Motown covers and just a party band. As most bands do, start out playing yeah. covers of so whatever's the Stones contemporary. The and the Kinks and so on. Yeah. yeah, I mean, the Beatles have plenty of R&B covers on their first few albums, so Is it's it, I mean, not both, unheard of. Both in America and, and you know, across the pond, we're, we're right in the sweet spot of like realizing that these, these you know, young rock and roller folks can actually write their own material and people will give a shit and buy it. I mean, up until here, it's still, you know, even well-established stars are still recording shit out of the contemporary songbook and that's how they're having big hits. They're not, or a part of some, you know, Motown or LA kind of like music machine sort of industry. And so the, the who kind of having free reign or actively being encouraged to come up with, well, and I think it's also stuff is much weird. the same way the Stones managers saw how much money Brian Epstein was making from songwriting royalties, yeah. locked Jagger and Richards in a closet and said, you learn how to write songs, boys, we can make some money here. I think uh, that may have also been part of why he was trying to get as many people writing for the band as possible, just so there's more songs he could sell to more people. But 
yeah, did not pan yeah, out. Yeah, there could well. have been a practic- practical reason for it. Yeah. I like this album a lot, by the way. I, I think it's good. I, I have some qualms with it, that, but it's not. it has a pretty good concentration of some of my favorite Who songs on it. So well, I, don't, I don't like how they're recorded and have endless beef with the production oh, and oh, things like that. The production from song to song, you just—it's all they over don't the place. Even sound like they were recorded. This in the same sounds place. like uh, uh, the the Primus cover album, the Miscellaneous Debris. That's like right, right, yeah, from yeah, ecstasy just, to Peter Gabriel to to the Meters. It like it's all over the fucking place. This is this is like we uh, a B sides compilation. Yeah. Well, I mean, when I first was thinking about doing a Who album, my my first thought was the the Wire because I'm like, well, a half the band is gone and they hadn't recorded in 25 years. So that's got to sound different. Than mo-. And then I played it. And I'm like, no, nah, it, it it may not be a great Who album, but it sounds like a pretty typical Who album. This updated one updated for uh, yeah older audience. But yeah, it's, this this one feels a lot more different than when they started to get into realizing that they were in nostalgia mode. I think they tightened it up and were like, "All right, this is what people want. We're going to give it to them." And they assembled the ringers and and, and did the and, thing and, and delivered and made a bunch of money. You know, we got to remember that the Who are the original corporate rock band. They they pioneered a lot of that. Their third album was called "The Who Sell Out." For Christ's sake, yeah. <laughs> So, so we know that, that Roger didn't write, sleeve. really, and, and Keith didn't write. The real question is, how many songs did Kenny Jones write for The Who? <laughs> 20? 25? I think all he wrote was his name on the back of his paycheck when he cashed it. <laughs> yeah, that works, that too. A, I wonder, yeah, I wonder if... Only got to sign your name one place. That's mm, I have no idea <laughs> if he has any songwriting credits anywhere. But It, it, it doesn't matter, I suppose. Although, what was he in before? The Faces? Uh, yeah, The Faces. So I, I bet mean, he does. I bet he has some yeah. credits. So I mean, one similarity between... All present have yeah. songwriting credits, right, right. for fuck's sake. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a quick one in The Wire is they both include a, a mini-suite, mini-opera in them, somehow taking up less than half of the album, so... I wonder if Pete was like, well, I'm only going to get three record or three songs on this record. I'm going to make sure that last one lasts. And I put all my freaking songs in that one because it was a, it, a lot of bands that would have been an outlier, but Pete's done a few rock operas now. So, and obviously will be said over and over and over again, any of the versions of these songs that are on live at Leeds or any of the live stuff, go listen to those. Yeah, they superior. don't suck. They're mm-hmm. fucking awesome. And they are what the, I mean, my, my main beef with the Who throughout their entire career is that all evidence points to the fact that they didn't sound anything like their albums live and were really cool and and cutting edge and and different as a live band and it just gets represented in a really cheesy way on a good bit of their recorded output and it's so it's frustrating to hear I mean, the a quick one on this is like a karaoke version of a quick one once you've heard them do it live. <laughs> Um, so, well, yeah, still my, a good song, but my in- introduction really to the who was a kind of greatest hits collection called meaty, beady, big and bouncy. And you know, that had a lot of the singles on it and yeah. a couple of the songs from, from this on it as well. And, and I don't know, uh, uh, well, I kind of remarked because at the time I was very much into the, the whole, um, British blues thing, you know, um, yeah. You know, Clapton Page. You know, you could throw yeah. H- Hendrix in there, that kind of stuff. And, and um, um, but um, this, it was so 
um, I guess I don't know the proper word for it, but poppy, kind of schmaltzy, cheesy. But I really enjoyed it. I thought it was fantastic. You know, yeah. so um, so I think there is a. I'm. I guess I'm just reinforcing what you're saying, Logan. Is that there is a real distinction between them as a rock band and them as a studio band. You know, it's a. Yeah. This this feels cheesy. And in a way that, like, uh, but I like cheese. Yeah, that's true. Uh, the <laughs> yeah, yeah, me too. <laughs> what kind of cheese are you partial to? <laughs> like, like, a, like a Humboldt fog kind of crumbly Limburger. Yeah, that's a good there one. There you go. Well, they they did fire their um, producer from the first album, who they did not get along with, and were trying to produce for themselves for the first time, which may be why some of the songs are are still learning how to produce, shall we say, and others get a little better. It's uneven to say the best, but um, do we want to just dig right into it? The uh, the first track, one of the three or four Townsend songs on here, Run, Run, Run. why they picked this for the first track because it sounds the most like the last album and what people expected from the who first time you put it on people are thinking oh another party record let's dance dun, yeah dun, dun. yeah that, that's well, a rocker that's a quintessential 60s rock song right yeah there. that's the british invasion all those bands that disappeared after the dave clark five or whatever and i like the, i like the backing vocals too yeah you know, early the, zombies kind yeah. of stuff Early kinks, the early. lead and rhythm guitar thing going on. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I wonder. You said that. I wonder who the other guitar player was. I, I, I suspect it wasn't overdubbed. Uh, I imagine they would have had another guitar player in the studio, but I could be wrong. I'd probably overdubbed it. It'd be cool for, if it was somebody like one, Jeff I, Beck or. I'd I'd be surprised if it wasn't Townsend. Yeah, you yeah. think it was? Yeah, mm-hmm. I could see Jimmy Page there sitting there, like I wish I yeah. was a rock star. You know, they're yeah, making some me do this stuff. It's like, a, but um. Uh, but I do know that that uh, at the time, you know, that, that um, they they often would when you record a song. It's like they didn't, you know, they only had four tracks, right? If that, yeah. In '66, um, you know, it's easier to just have someone else play it. But yeah, who knows? I mean, I do like the way the the song like comes to a natural conclusion halfway through, and then just jumps up a, a step or half step. I'm not sure exactly. <laughs> I like uh, Satellite of Love as a better stalker song. Yeah. <laughs> That's the uh, Britney Spears trick. Too. There you go. She must have learned it from the Who. Just, <laughs> every song has to have a key change. And well, if you don't have any other ideas, I mean, clearly, lyrically, this is mostly run, repeated over and over again. And musically, it's mostly just those two fantastic but not terribly complicated chords. So He'd saved all his words for later in the album. Yeah, yeah, he's got a he's got some words on him, but um, this is the only Pete song on side one. So I'm kind of surprised they didn't swap this with um, the Roger Daltrey song. So all the Pete songs were on side two, and and nobody would play the other side. Yeah. How messed up was the the running order for the American release? So is it just the replacement of Happy Jack? Yeah, I think they just simply 
swapped Happy Jack for mm-hmm. Heat Wave. Which the order is all the same except for Happy Jack in the oh, place. Oh, cool. I should have bought that one. Yeah. Damn yeah, Americans. I, just, you know, I mean, if I bought this album in 66, well, yeah, I might have still been in my mother's womb. But if I had done it, I yes. would have um, uh, been, all right, this is cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I mean, I think, you know, after the Beatles showed that you can have more than one good songwriter in a band, everyone was like, well, let's... Let's see what we can do. I mean, when Sid, the Pink Floyd finally accepted that Sid Barrett wasn't coming back, they they gave everybody a quarter of an album on Amagama to sort of <laughs> audition who's going to lead this ship from there on out. Or, or you know, I mean... Right, who's going to step forward and yeah. you know, who or, has the talent? Or it's kind of like the Kiss solo albums where, you know, some of them may have wanted to do a solo album... And some were pushed into it just because Gene wanted to quadruple his profits for the quarter. So, um, yeah, we'll we'll get to the the the, the Peter Chris album at some point. Or... <laughs> That's a good one. I enjoy it. Yeah. Can we do the? As as I've said before, if we do the Kiss one, we got to do another episode. That's the Melvins parody of the Kiss one. We can do all all three of them in the. In 10 in, minutes. In, in 10 minutes. <laughs> but uh, they're pretty great, too. There you go. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, just as the quick aside. Yeah, Casey, I don't know if you had a chance to listen to it, but we did We did um, cover Kiss's, um, rather, we had a detour and outliers of <laughs> Kiss's music from the elder. Um, that was the first episode of Detours and Outliers that I listened to. All right. Yes, yes. And, and uh, <laughs> We're sorry. <laughs> so, yeah. Hell of a way to break me in, boys. Yeah, yeah. That's like... <laughs> But we we uh, we did come to a, a conclusion that it really does sound like a musical. So we thought it might be, um, it would certainly be a challenge, but it might be something that the dark could do. I'm not sure if anyone would show up, but that oh. would be. So we've so done Tommy's The Who. So. <laughs> dark does songs from the elder. Yeah. Oh, I am Only if we can boy. do it on an ice rink. There yeah. you go. <laughs> Kiss on ice. I'm kind of surprised that hasn't happened yet. You know, we you might be incorrect. Uh oh. <laughs> Well, shall we move on to the um, the second track, uh, Entwistle's theme tune, almost, uh, Boris the Spider. Strangely, the single off the record. Cool. I don't think Townsend liked that his song wasn't the single on the record. Whistle's accent so thick he had to double up the vocals. <laughs> one saying Boas in his normal accent, and other one saying Bolas. <laughs> so Whatever it takes. Well, didn't sound like Boris when they originally recorded it. That's for sure. It, I mean, it definitely sounds like a bass player song, much the way that uh, another one bites the dust sounds like John oh, yeah. Deacon. And I you mean, can really hear, I think, uh, Ent Whistle's, uh, you know, his um, kind of distorted bass tone that he became so famous for it really yeah. is he uh, shines he's, here he's, he goes up there as like a probably top five 
influence. In fact, the first like rock and roll record that I ever remember listening to is Live at Leeds. And, uh, you know, I ruined my dad's record player and, and his records, but <laughs> it's like seriously like five or six years old. And I remember hearing that, uh, you know, his aunt whistles playing and his really, really snarling, you know, tone and everything and how big a role that it played in the Who's sound and how, it, you know, he's on, on their live material. He's almost the lead guitarist and Pete sort of more like, I don't know. It, live, Ant Whistle's more like the, the lead guitarist. Pete's kind of more like the drummer, and <laughs> Looney Mooney's kind of like a second, more unhinged lead guitarist. <laughs> and then there's a guy twirling <laughs> with a lot of fringe on for some reason. It but, was... <laughs> What's the style at the time? <laughs> but uh, and again, like this one's cool because it features, you know, a, a pretty killer bass riff and cranked up bass guitar tone. But on the rest of their kind of modded out jangly shit, just the thing that they were best at and the thing that they were in, in fact, were is not represented at all and is pretty steamrolled by production. And so this one's kind of kind of cool because it sort of subverts that as much as they could get away with. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's just a riff. It's just a goofy riff. All the Ant Whistle songs are either just a clever riff or they're a pretty weird uh, chord progression, like a unresolving bizarro, like we'll hear with, like, Whiskey Man and, like, Heaven in Hell is pretty bizarre chord progression in the song that doesn't really go anywhere, which is kind of cool, but... Oh, Cousin Kevin drives me crazy playing... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> My fingers don't bend like that. Yeah. So is it natural for people with a lower vocal register to gravitate towards the bass guitar? Well, Ant Whistle does. He always called himself a bass guitarist. His heroes were like Dwayne Eddy. Yeah. Um, and he was emphatic about the fact that he did not play the bass. He played the bass guitar. And he really plays it like a guitar player would play on the lower strings. Never ever appro approaching any kind of like walking jazzy shit. He plays it like he was in the right place at the right time. Cause he got to invent all that. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. There was nobody for him to copy yet. When uh, the, the bass guitar is still a brand new freaking instrument. It is not 10 years old yet. And um, there was no real rules about how it should be played or what role that it played. Originally people thought it would just sort of replace the upright bass it but, is easier to carry, but they could just be, yeah, because it's much smaller and less fragile and, and louder. Um, but, uh, he just, uh, yeah, he kind of took the capabilities, natural capabilities of the electric bass and went really nuts exploring all of them and, and is a, actually really influential on the instrument, even though he's, you know, not a jazz guy. He's not a shredding whatever. No. He's he's a dumb rock and roller, but he really did kind of yeah, explore the hell out of the capabilities of that instrument when it was brand trail new. Bra trailblazer. Right? Yeah. yeah, he started off playing horn too, which got those three fingers of his just dancing. Yeah, he was a French horn player uh, when he translated that over to his bass playing. And then uh, he, John also is like the the ringer in the band for singing. He. If whenever there's a really impossibly high harmony part or a really impossibly low harmony part, he's the one who's singing it. And the crazy thing about that is that there's a fucking bass solo that he's playing while he's singing, like <laughs> probably the hardest vocal part 
at the same time. And so, I don't know, I've always been impressed by that, and so that he could sing and play the two most tricky things at the same time, and often does. Well, since this is only The Who's second record, did people know what their voices sound like? Could they tell this wasn't Roger singing the whole thing? I mean, their I don't think voices... Roger had found his voice yet. I was going to say, they all sound kind of similar, and, and sometimes I'd have to check my notes to say, oh, is this Keith singing, or is this Roger, or <laughs> Pete? Uh, Pete doesn't sing much on this record at all yet. I mean, I think he's got a couple lead vocals on the the the, the long opera at the end, mm-hmm. but that's about it, so I mean... It is funny that they had a, a you know a front person singer who didn't particularly have the best singing chops in the band or hadn't found his voice yet or I mean again if you listen to any of the live stuff it's still if you pay close attention it's still Pete is doing like eighty percent of the the heavy lifting. So so what is Roger doing when um, John is doing Boris the Spider? Is he just taking a nap? Is he playing tambourine? Marching in place like he does? <laughs> yeah. Twirling, Twirling his fringe. Hey, everyone needs a job. Ruin, ruin of a perfectly good microphone. He's the eye candy. <laughs> well, it, it was the style at the time. Should we go on to the, uh, the first Keith Moon of the many great Keith Moon written songs? I mean, he, I need you like a hole in the head. Love songs weren't exactly the Who's forte, in my opinion. And then Lurch shows up playing that harpsichord. <laughs> yes. Somebody left it in the studio. It's ours now. <laughs> and they bang on it. Hear those drums? I mean, are the microphones like sitting on top of the cymbals or what? <laughs> it's way down at the end of the hallway. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's that whole like skit in the middle of it where they've got these weird... Oh, liver puddly and accents. I can't understand a word they say. Um, hey, it's, don't worry, man. Don't shift out here. Yeah, it's like, you For know. For no reason, but it was 66, so you had 66. to have at least one I mean, of those. The, the creativity is there. I mean, yeah, he's clearly, yeah. He's, right, but what, what exactly he's trying to be communicated is a more, more difficult. The production is, um, as Casey was mentioning, is startlingly sad. Yeah. Yeah, it, I mean, naive. I think is it? somebody well, well, who doesn't know what they're doing in this. Well, I'm, yeah, it's just like there's there's certain. It, it's almost like um, you know. I'm sure it sounded worse, but I'm not positive about yeah. this. I remember very early on when I tried to um, make recordings out of, on a portable cassette recorder that my oh, yeah. dad had. That's the kind of quality you would end up with. This sort of, uh, distorted distance um yeah it could have been layering too they might have just you know, bounced everything way too loud to one track while they were adding another you know, who knows who knows well, one of the reasons that i like the songs on this album but hate this album sonically is just that it seems like they took whatever the pop production standard of how you how you recorded bass guitar how you recorded guitar how you recorded drums and how you mixed all that stuff and they applied what they would use for 
any pop band to the who and the who have this crazy inverted priority of instruments and things like that. Like even on this one, you can hear, you know, kind of classic Mooney sort of fills, but they just sound like, yeah, like Casey was saying, like they, they put the, the, they had one mic on the drum and it was about a, a 16th of an inch above the crash cymbal. And that's, <laughs> that's how they recorded the whole thing. It sounds like shit. And it's like, no, that's the coolest that's the neatest thing about it, and you're representing it terribly while representing something that's simple and inconsequential to the song as, like, the loudest, most featured thing. And it's just like they they couldn't break from the the standard kind of song pop song production of the time. And, you know, they wouldn't, like, cut them any slack at all, even though they're, like, a very different band. And I, I mean, it took into the 70s. I mean... You know, it was it was well into their career before I think they really started to dial some of that shit in and just be like, "No, nah, we sound like this. This is what it's supposed to sound like." Yeah, on when the did record. when did um when did Who's Next come out? What year was that? Seventy one, seventy one. Yeah, I think that's that's the one where I think you really got production that captured. Yeah, well, you got better. Glenn Johns, who's just a legend, and uh, he could make anybody sound good, really. And um, yeah. That um and then what what and I'm just sort of riffing on that. Uh, didn't um are you experienced come out in '66 as well or was that a little bit later? I thought, I thought that was '67 or six. Yeah, that was '67. '67. Yeah. 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 Freak out came out in '66. Yeah. yeah. Revolver. So, so yeah, revolver. Right. So, so sounds face to face. So this this is a this is a time period where where people just, knew how to record. Yeah, they knew how to record, but they probably didn't know how to record. The exactly, the, yeah, I think they were just they started out and they were like a pop band, and so they got squeezed out of the pop band, you know, Plato mold thing. You treated know? them like Herman's Hermits, and and I think it took them a couple of years to get get out of that and kind of live that down a little bit. Yeah, um, apparently this song was Herman's Hermits. Herman's Hermits. This song was written as a, a you know response to. John Lennon, whom Keith Moon thought was talking to him subliminally in his paranoid state. I wonder what he was saying. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so that's why the song was, has harpsichord. So it's supposed to be Beatlesque or something. I don't know. Lots of speed and brandy, man. <laughs> so like, yeah, that's, I, I wish we knew. I wish we I wish. I don't even think Keith knew. We could have a seance or something and get Keith to explain this. Nowhere. Smash my toilet. I was going to say, get a safe space for that seance. (laughs) But there have been reports that uh, John Lennon could be less than kind in the 1960s. Oh, yeah. And (laughs) so, I mean, you know. He usually doesn't do it subliminally, but yeah. <laughs> Maybe that was it. Maybe he was taken aback that he wasn't being abused. Yes. Why isn't John Lennon abusing me? I need you to abuse me. That's what the song is saying. Speaking of substances, shall we um, go on to the next track? Whiskey Man. I love this track. Yeah, this is a good one. Second Ent Whistle track. If they can't see my whiskey man, they must be going blind. Two men dressed in white collected me two days ago. They said there's only room for one. 
John could write some good fucking songs, man. This is a good dark one too. Yeah, this is this is heart wrenching. <laughs> one of the few songs on this that doesn't sound overwhelmed by poor mo- microphone placements. Yeah. So is that John playing the the horn there? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I figured as much because I mean it sounds competent without being you know. London Philharmonic level. He's so. on a bunch of stuff though with the with the French horn. If there's trumpet occasionally. Right? Yeah. This is um one of those songs that um that confused me about the Who early on. At least before I I actually knew anything about music, is I'd always be like, "Where's the bass? I don't hear the bass." And and it's like it's the loudest fucking thing exactly. on this track. I, I just you know because I just exactly it's like yeah. takes over it, it. It is like you said, it's playing the role of the. The guitar is very subdued on the Nessel tracks, for sure. Yeah. Man, what a, this is my top five uh, songs about uh, alcohol-induced dementia. <laughs> There's a lot of them out there. Actually, you know, when I was listening to it, my first thought was, this sounds a lot like a Joe Jackson song. Oh, huh. Yeah, okay. Like, you know, just the, Joe the Jackson's sort of, got a great bass player, too. Yeah. But just the, the way the, the, the melody rolls and the, the sort of odd chord progression seem more... Like a piano player, then. Yeah, and it has that sing-songy kind of yeah. quality, you know. Yeah. I could see Joe doing that, but that was just that was my one note. Yeah, this song is awesome. This is one of the better songs on the whole the whole thing. And if actually, if you like this, the um, there's a couple Ant Whistle solo albums, but and they're hit or miss. But uh, I think the first uh, John Ant Whistle solo album has a bunch of stuff that sounds pretty similar to. To Whiskey Man, um, and yeah, you should check that out if you if you dig this. And you know, uh, Jeff, the bass player of the Morning Sickness, he dragged me. Um, it was a pretty easy drag yeah. uh, to um, to see an Ant Whistle concert here at the um, the what's the one off the highway, the Grizzly Rose. Or, oh yeah, sorry, yeah, you know, something. And uh, it was it was a it was a good show. But my my big takeaway from that was. I could not believe how loud it was. Yeah. I mean, it was louder than, say, ministry or something there, like this. There are stories of, uh, especially, like, kind of who's next era. Like, the, the the roadies would be setting up Ant Whistle's rig on his on the, you know, stage right, and uh, that he would go to play his bass rig and that they would run as fast as they could <laughs> away. Like, people would run from the stage because they were... Run! Run, about run. to be made to death by, yeah, that's uh, run, run, run. See, maybe that's what that song's about. <laughs> yeah, no, but that's um, uh, there was some interview I wish I, I had written down where I read this or saw this, the yeah. video, but it was uh, they were it was an interview with Pete Townsend and he was talking about Ent Whistle and how you know the loudness of his rig was a big part of the sound. You know, not just to make it louder, but it created a lot of the, um, or allowed you to hear a lot of the overtones, yeah. which enabled enabled the band to sound a w- in a way that it would, it would be impossible to duplicate without a whole bunch of other instruments in the band. Yeah. And so you could have a little, you know, three piece like this making, you know, a, a lot of musical racket. Yeah. I mean, just think about playing bass through like 400 watt high watt stacks. Like, and just dimed. Like, that's terrifying. It's so freaking loud. <laughs> that's like your neighbors a, a mile away are pissed off at you, kind of you know, loud. Once uh, Keith Moon joined the band, they needed to do that, though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nobody beat drums harder. 
Speaking of Keith, um, shall we go on to his uh, um, magnum opus, shall opus. we say? Oh, wait, no. First, we've got the cover track, don't we? Heat Wave. good example of how they got the label of maximum r&b pouring gasoline on classic songs (laughs) yeah that's a good that's a good description that is up tempo it's cranking it is it's pretty funny hearing mooney trying to play like regular drums and shit (laughs) (laughs) it is that whole that whole british scene in the 60s so um I guess all pop music is one way or the other, but I mean, these are rock and roll bands, but they're very big on vocal harmonies. And yeah, I, I mean, that, that's not something the who is generally known for, but they do have some skill in singing harmonies. I mean, and Pete's ability to write vocal harmonies is pretty stellar. That, that helps a lot. Especially if when you, you got John's falsetto voice in there. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it, it's competent, but I can see why this was the one that was cut when they had to cut one to swap out Happy Jack. I mean, it was, it was probably still in the fun. charts in the U.S. in 1966. Yeah, yeah. so... Yeah, it, it does sort of come off as, you know, covering a song that's still a hit at the time, it doesn't seem like you're as invested because you didn't grow up with it. You just heard it, so... I think it's a throwback to my generation as well because my generation was such a party record yeah, with all dancey songs throughout, and I think they'd kind of wanted to keep a tiny pinch of that before they moved on to their so-called experimental phase. Yes. And this, I, I'd even describe this as proto-punk. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, if they were, they were just a little more distorted, a little faster, and maybe less harmonies. Yeah, to, yeah. scoot a little bit of harmonies away, but it's definitely, like you said, it's the, it's the maximum R&B. It's the, you know. Yeah, this is where we came from. We're not there anymore, though. It's kind of yeah. It's kind of like a, a a punk rock version of right, right. Of, of Motown or Stax yeah. or something like that. Yeah, it's it's competent, but it it may be my least favorite track on the record. So it's a, it's like you know a high bar. It's, if you're gonna try to copy something, yeah. yeah. Well, that's <laughs> the thing is I I don't feel like they either successfully copied it or successfully added something to it. Yeah, it feels kind of in between it's the not, two. It's not a fresh take. It's just yeah. But they're not, yeah. It could easily go on the album My Generation and, and fit perfectly right in, but this album, yeah. no two songs are like... Exactly. Maybe yeah. it was a, a, you know, a leftover track from the yeah, last album. They were just... Roger couldn't come up with anything, so they dug something out of the vaults. <laughs> poor Roger. Yeah, poor Roger. Poor Roger. Well... This next song is, is oddly enough, not one they chose to cut, despite the fact it's one of the rare Who instrumentals. Um, Cobwebs and Strange.
you got uh, Townsend on the penny whistle, yeah. uh, Daltrey on trombone, uh, Entwistle on tuba. Pretty restrained Keith Moon on the drums. Oh, my goodness. Once again, he's hitting those things so hard, it almost distorts the microphone. And they let him scream and holler all he wants during this track. Somebody needed to. Everybody else had a horn in their mouth. Remember that reprise of Sing We All This Together from the <laughs> Satanic <laughs> Majesty's Request? This is, um, you know, about 30% better than that. Slightly <laughs> more competent. In the in the Kids Are Alright movie, they have the black and white uh, little skit with this song. Keith Moon's got a helmet on. Shiny yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, what's the... Uh, He's the robot they, they take out of the... Yeah... Was that a box? Did they make that after the fact, or was that? That was the promotional did video for this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did yeah. Did they, they, we're gonna send this to Ed Sullivan and become big stars. <laughs> That's uh, I don't know. I, I think we should we should link that one if we can find it on the. the uh, everything's thing. on the YouTube's. We'll, yeah, we'll look for it. I think this is great because yeah. it, it's exposing some some odd influences. Yes, um, it is certainly the most outlier on this outlier. I mean, even. The title track is not as strange as Cub was and Strange. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of glad we don't have a whole album of this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I'm it, really glad it's here. Yeah. I mean, how much writing did Keith Moon really do for this? I mean, he didn't even write songs for his solo album, did he? No. No, he did <laughs> Beach Boys covers for whatever reason. Yeah, well, and this one, this probably has the best representation of, of Keith's playing. <laughs> and that's how he's going. playing all the time. <laughs> it's just whether or not there's a microphone on. Yeah, and you can, you yeah, know. right. And this is the sound inside it's Keith's far more, head far all more the exposed, time. right? Yeah, like, yeah. This, is, this is what he sounded like. I, as, a, as a bass player, I'm just like, God damn, I'm glad I don't have to play in a band with that asshole. Like, he cannot <laughs> keep time. He never plays. A, there's no... There's no backbeat ever. He's not counting ever. It's just like a drum, a sloppy fucking drunk drum solo well, this until is... somebody says, okay, s- stop. The song is over. <laughs> I mean, this is more pleasant to listen to than your average drum solo, but yes. And, it, and it's great. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, somehow it just makes everything, you know, yeah. At, at two and a half minutes, that's, that's enough. color exciting, you, you know. You know how there's certain musicians who, like, kind of can break every rule of their instrument and get away with it somehow? Either by context or just sheer force of will. The Who are kind of like a whole fucking band of people like that. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> Four raging egos. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah, they might be doing it the, the force, the heavy-handed way, but it, it works. And, and I think that's, again, why it's so frustrating when, when, it gets, when elements of it are toned down, because it's like, oh, no, any one part of this only works if everybody's just completely fucking raging like full blast all the time. Oh yeah. That's um, in, I remember this from reading 
Townsend's autobiography, he did, he made, you know, it was, it didn't sound cruel or mean or anything, but he did say that, that, um, once, uh, uh, Kenny Jones got in the band, he said it was such a, it was so great to just actually play with a drummer <laughs> and, 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 uh, uh, but, but at the same time, you know, when, when you listen to those couple of albums, you know, they yeah. did with Kenny Jones after, after it's um, hard. Rooney, yeah. It's like, yeah, it's hard. Exactly. And it's, a. Uh, there's something not right, you know. I mean, it's just not. The kids are not right. <laughs> the, the kids are not all right. It's so, just yeah, the, the excitement. There's something that there's something there that made everything explode. So when the Who was touring behind Face Dances, they would cover this song, right? Kenny yeah. would take this solo. <laughs> oh, Kenny could handle it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I would have down to, to a, about that tempo. And this one is cool because it is really. Yeah, everything going nuts all at the same time. Even and, though uh, it doesn't sound like they the, say that uh, Kit Lambert had them marching in front of the microphones back and forth, like they were uh, in a marching band, and it was just uh, wow. <laughs> that makes me happy. Something yeah. tells me there was a lot of booze involved once no. again. I'm pretty sure the photographs of, of uh, this studio session has pianos with lines of scotch and brandy <laughs> bottles across the top of it. Ah, yes. Brandy they, Alexanders. They did revisit this song <laughs> What's for, under- for Heinz Baked Beans on the following record. Whoa, but it is whoa. so tame by comparison, but it's still the same notes and the same instrumentation. See? Because it's not psychotic. <laughs> well, What's, what brandy drink did you? Brandy Alexander. That's like brandy and milk, I think. Ice cream. Ice cream. I, oh. Or is that a Tom and Jerry? I don't know. If one of those is yeah, the yeah, thing yeah. that like all the rock stars in the 70s were doing too much of, Phil Spector and John yeah, Lennon yeah, out think, in L.A. were... I think you're right. It was milk. But there's well, there's a version of that same yeah. drink, but with ice cream. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So. Well, you learn something new every day. Yeah. <laughs> Kids. <laughs> I do not want one of those. (laughs) (laughs) Wouldn't the milk curdle? I mean, yeah, you gotta drink it fast. You gotta drink it real fast. What's wrong with a little curdling? It's like a white Russian, you know. Indeed. Like a white Russian, no, that sounds good. Well, shall we move on to side two? Another song by Pete, now that we've gotten two each from Keith and John. Don't look away. Yesterday you were my girlfriend If you do, my cycles around and around in a whirlwind There's a stone in my shoe So I can catch you up My head's in a lion's mouth Wants to eat me up right here today Why didn't Pete ever do a country album? He does have a good... uh, It gets folky at times. Yeah, Yeah. that's the skiffle. All the best cowboys have Chinese eyes. Yeah, yeah, Pete, even though I will continue to rip on him as a shit guitar player, he is actually not, you know, but... (laughs) But, uh, yeah, Pete's actually kind of a great guitar player and uh, plays the role that he set out to play in this band very well and on the, of his guitar chops he does possess some like kind of twangy awesome country chops everyone that that poke out here and there 
unexpectedly. Oh, that was kind of Chet Atkins like. Yeah. yeah, it's very sort of. Well, know, he started out on the banjo before he picked up his first guitar. Well, that would explain that. Yeah. So he was playing skiffle. I take everything back. He sucks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> banjo players, they're the worst. <laughs> no, I mean the thing is, you know, after side one and all that weirdness, this does feel like kind of a. I don't know if letdown or relief is the right word, but it is sort of a change of pace from, you know, cobwebs and strange. What's the difference between a banjo and a trampoline? Um, you take your shoes off before you jump on the trampoline. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Had to be said. Says the banjo player. Hey. <laughs> I've heard them all. Yeah, this is, this is a pretty, um, well, obviously... I mean, it should yeah. sound like it, but it is a very Pete Townsend-like song. Yeah. Well, and it does emphasize it after having been deprived of Pete Townsend for the last five songs or whatever. You're like, oh, yeah, that's that's what Pete adds to the band. Was there any, was there any uh, after this album, was there any sort of insistence from the other band members that they keep writing songs? Like, you know, I, no. I always wondered if they were like, like, you know, Please. jealous of Pete or mad at Pete, or if they were just like, "Hey, you do it." I think only when John was behind on the mortgage payments on his castle. Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah they usually just booked a tour to take care of that. Well, another album we'll have to cover sometime is the uh, the Creedence Clearwater Revival album Mardi Gras, which, according to the bass player and drummer, they were forced to write the songs because. Um, Fogarty couldn't come up with anyone. And according to Fogarty, he let them write songs because they kept bugging him about it, and he wanted to show them it wasn't as easy as it looked. But either way, <laughs> everyone blames the other for having to write those songs on that album, and it's, uh, it's a, there's a reason why John Fogarty writes for them. Yeah. But that was, that was a lot more um, animostic, I think, or, or just yeah. antagonistic. Some, yeah. Grudges for Yeah. Well, this one, it, it does feel like, yeah, Keith didn't want to write. Roger didn't want to write. John wrote as much as he wanted to. So this was, yeah, so this, like you said, Kit, that was, who's their manager, right? Kit Lambert? Kit Lambert. Yeah. So, Chris Stamp. Yeah, so it was, a, right. So. It was an edict that came down from on high, and they they did it and realized the mistake of doing it and moved on. Well, that's why you have managers. You want them to manage, right? Yeah. They're like, oh, try this. Pete's a genius. He didn't do any studying. I'm sure you're all geniuses. Go for it. <laughs> just watch him smash that guitar. Yeah, you know, how hard can it be? I mean, he just, he's, come on with a generation. There you go. Do some stuttering. You'll be fine. Oh, yeah, speaking of the guitar smashing, too, that, that was kind of fascinating learning about that, that, that some of that, you know, I always assumed it was just shtick, right? And, I, and yeah. it is part of that, right? Yeah. It's just entertainment. You're smashing up something for fun. But, but it, I think it also came out of the, uh, the, the art school environment that, that Pete had been in. He and, claims uh, that. Yeah, yeah. So. Daltrey says he was just trying to show off for girls. Yeah. Well, wasn't that art? Wasn't that the whole purpose? <laughs> <laughs> well, they were very young, so it could have been both. Yes, yes. Yeah, I, I, I like the idea that it came out of legitimate frustration at a gig <laughs> gone wrong. It's like, I constantly want to smash a guitar because I'm upset with... I should have friends. an extra guitar on stage that I don't want in case I do get frustrated I have something to take it out on. I broke a Gibson on stage, and to this day, I, my heart still aches. <laughs> yeah. We closed with my generation, and I begged my band, please don't make us close with my generation, and I ended up smashing my gear. Yeah, it, it's just inherent in the song. You can't help it. It's I didn't know better. Yeah, 
I couldn't help myself. It's in the sheet music. <laughs> Tempo 128. And smash have, guitar here. You didn't have six other ones that they could piece it back together with. You know? one, of, yeah. one of my first guitar teachers had a great story about smashing like an ES-335 like on stage. Be, having like brought a guitar, sacrificial guitar to smash and being too fucked up or something and grabbing the nice one by mistake and not realizing it. And then the next day, he, you know, like popped open his case and the, the shitty guitar that he was going to smash was quite intact. Pristine. And there was nothing left of the, his good guitar. And he, uh, there's a, there's a price to pay in phone, phoned one of his friends to find out what happened. It was like, what happened at the gig last night? He was like, Oh man, it was crazy. You guys were awesome. You smashed your guitar and, didn't give a shit. It was cool. He was, he said he actually cried. <laughs> Let this be a lesson to you kids. Don't drink and rock and roll at the same time. Yeah. They famously don't go well together. Yes. <laughs> well, shall we move on to Roger Daltrey's The Best Song He Ever Wrote? A song I skip every time. See My Way. Some way, someday, I'll find a way to make you see my way. Even if you don't think like I do, you know that it's true. It's your mind that I see. Try so hard to make me think my parts of you was bad. Although at times when you can talk like that. The song sounds like there's a floor tom and a cymbal in a room. Yeah. And sounds like Pete Townsend's not even in the room with him. Oh, no. He, he took a nap. Yeah. Somebody learned their chords. You're right. It sounds like he's out in the closet or mm-hmm. in a closet or in, down the hallway or something. Yeah. French horn comes in as the lead instrument. So that's the best track off the record. Does does Roger have any solo albums? He's got plenty, but he does he write anything on them? I don't think so. Pretty Roger. sure he helps gets help from producers. There you go. Some people he does are, it the old-fashioned way. Yes, <laughs> he hires them. It's like yeah, that's um. Well, you know, when you play in a band with Pete Townsend most of your life, why bother learning how to write songs? The, the front person of the original corporate rock band has other people write his music for him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that blows my mind. He's another, he's another case though. You just, you, you can't imagine, um, or well, you can imagine it cause you've seen the other guys play yeah. with other people and it's just, it's not the same without Roger Daltrey. Yeah. So it's, there's so there's this magic quintet or quartet. Yeah. And the thing is, I think part of the reason I've always had a hard time getting into not only The Who, but The Stones and Zeppelin and Aerosmith and ACDC or whatever, I just, I cannot abide singers who don't play an instrument. It For some reason, it rubs me the wrong way. Well, and apparently, he could play the guitar fairly well. Yeah, just didn't need to. Right, Yeah, Yeah. and just didn't. Yeah, well, apparently Madonna can play the guitar well too. It is. Yeah, <laughs> it's not that hard to play. <laughs> Playing really well is hard, but right. But, but knowing all three chords is yeah, right. Not a challenge. Well, three making some music is not jazz, man. Jazz, yeah. Well, yeah. Challenge. But uh, you know, even Mick Jagger straps on a guitar once in a while, and so That's does true. Roger Daltrey. That is true. That is true. It, it's it's much 
better looking than banging a tambourine. Doesn't he play that endless ostinato on on Eminence Front? Like yeah, maybe. Whole two notes. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> yeah. Dun, there is dun, the turnaround. Dun. <laughs> hey. That's the whole measure. If hey, I yeah. were ever to be uh, a, the lead singer of a band and nothing else, I would just strap, I don't know, seven to 12 guitars to my body. Yeah. Just, just <laughs> Have because. a vest full of harmonicas. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A sousaphone. They're going to they're gonna hang around to see when I'm going to play those, yeah. the, the sousaphone. I wouldn't just have three of them yeah. strapped to a, a crudely made harness. For know, no reason. For no reason. That'd be silly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or you can just go the Roger route and just go nuts with the fringe. Yeah. Or you could go the Art Garfunkel route and just stand a good foot taller than the other guy. <laughs> I don't need a guitar. Less I can beat you away. up. Yeah. It's not in the cards Arr. for me, Scott. Sing really close. <laughs> Hello, darkness, my old friend. <laughs> well, I, I we probably don't need to bang this much one. more in this one. This <laughs> yeah, let's move here. on I, to apparently the most covered song on this album and possibly the who's entire catalog for some reason so sad about us best song on the album it's got everything you want from a who single that that like turnaround and the the harmonies and the 12 string guitar that sounds a lot like a bird song actually it's uh got the balls of uh substitute uh and uh the the catchy backing vocals of substitute too really yeah uh could have gone on that record and fit perfectly almost stands out as too well of a written song for this record, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, it is really funny, like you were pointing out earlier, Casey, about the just the emphasis on a vocal, vocal melodies and harmonies in this band that's known for just like raging, like rock and roll. And the first thing that raging rock and roll usually does is just steamroll any kind of melody in favor of. You know, blast, blasted out blues box noodling and shit like that. You know, it's like the the who are weird. It's like if Blue Cheer had like three part harmonies. You know, <laughs> you know, it's it's yeah. really weird. Blue Cheer know? backing up the Beach Boys. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's 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 weird. And this, I'd be down with that. Yeah, sounds cool. Yeah, and the guitar playing is you can you can hear it. You know, Townsend had a had a unique. Well, I don't know how unique it was, but he was definitely unique in the the rock world at that time period because he, he started to use chords with different voicings than you know standard major minor stuff yeah. that really suited. Well, it propelled the music along, and it really suited the the vocal harmonies at the same time. Yeah. Um, well, and as as a as a noodly ass bass player, I like when a guitarist in a band writes songs because that where they know they have a noodly ass bass player who can do cool stuff and they write songs to feature that and they stay the hell out of the way. The, I mean, 
that's never happened to me, but yeah, you know. theoretically, someday. <laughs> Pete does it, and you know, I got to give him credit for that. Because, um, yeah, yeah, like you said, he, he, in some ways, he's playing the role of a drummer. Yeah, he's, he's the one he's, keeping the whole thing together. Well, so I think even at this point, Keith might not even have hi hats on his kid anymore. I'm pretty sure you're correct. Because in the in the Smothers Brothers video, he either doesn't have them at all, or they're like. Four, like an arm's length out of reach to the left of the kit, and uh, was that his choice? That was he, they, yeah. He uh, when did he, they just take him away from when him? he arrived at his big, uh, uh, um, like double bass drum setup with like the double rows of toms across the front. Like he was not, he didn't have uh, hi hats. Room or interest for them? If he if or interest for them, <laughs> and if he did have them, they were out of reach and 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 useless as such, and. You know, uh, I just thought maybe because sometimes hi hats can be um, annoying. Yeah, and and you know, I wondered if it's like we can't have you using these. One of <laughs> one of my favorite uh, uh, rhythm section combination, like two headed monster things, is the Tower of Power band with Rocco Pristia on bass and Dave Garibaldi. And in that case, Rocco is pretty much the hi hat of the drum kit because the drummer never really. And not that he doesn't play the hi-hat, but it's all this syncopated, you know, crazy shit. And so th- that creates this necessity for the bass player to play a bunch of dead notes and just constantly be going da 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 because the drummer's supposed to be doing that, but he just couldn't be bothered to. So there's a pretty similar thing in The Who, you know, when they're when they're all fired up and they're all doing their Who thing, where the you know, the voicings and the different roles rhythmically in the band are just kind of shifted to instruments that don't usually have that responsibility and they can pull it off. They can. So Keith's not going to do it. So (laughs) (laughs) it's nice to have, you know, it's nice to have that, that freedom. Yeah. And also it is, it is like, like you said as well, with regard to Entwistle, it's not, he's not a jazz drummer or jazz bass player. None of these guys are. Um, and, and at the same time they're, they're, um, they're inventing new ways to play these instruments, even though they aren't what you would call, you know, I mean, they're rock and roll musicians. They're not, they're not studying, right? They're not studying. They're not, they're not the, uh, you know, the top 1% of the players in their field or things like yeah. this. But at the same time, they're, they're uh, admired and revered, I think, because they, they took what they had and they made really unique stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I remember reading early on about like Pete having to, uh, you know, he's not, he's no Robert Fripp or Jimi Hendrix or anything, but, you know, at the time, there's, there's only one set of guitar strings and they are fucking heavy as hell. And so he would, you know, use an extra E for a B so you could bend a B. And I mean, I think we're still in the, the times of, you know, your regular set of guitar strings, even if they are round wounds and not flats, they probably have a wound G string. Mm-hmm. And so people would either take pliers and take the outer wrap off of that or just, Use two two B strings for the the G and the B, or you know, and then or combine sets or get uh, banjo strings yeah, or things like that, there, yeah. so that they could actually do this this you know blues, blues bending jangly shit, which was not you know it's I know it's in standard tuning and is the first thing that everybody who learns to play guitar now does, but at the time was still pretty extended technique, and so. Yeah, while he doesn't get, he usually gets made fun of for uh, uh, 
being a, a hacky guitarist, uh, you know, by me. Um, <laughs> he was a, he's a good guitarist and, and did some neat kind of innovative things. And it, and it usually uh, was shown off in the songwriting rather than the, right. the and, instrumentation. Yeah, like you said, he, he, wrote, he wrote songs for the other members of the band, but I mean, he wrote to their abilities. Yeah. I'm sure he wrote to his own as well, right? You know, he, yeah, he made yeah. things that would really, that would really be, um, um, you know, I hate this phrase. I really hate this phrase. But he would say, you know, I play to the song. It's yeah. like, what the hell does that mean? <laughs> it's like, like you know, the song is the song. And I think Nerd. that's what he did. He wrote parts that worked really well, right? When he yeah. plays them. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. That makes sense. Well, speaking of Pete, shall we get on to the first of how many rock operas has he written? Oh, Six or so? Tommy, Lifehouse, Quadrophenia. Yeah. Then uh, Wire and Glass. That's that's more than most people. I think Ray Davies may have him beat, but most people. He wrote a couple in his solo career as well. Yeah. Quadrophenia is pretty sonically great. It's a masterpiece. Earth has been gone for nearly a year. He was due home yesterday, but he ain't here. Herb has been gone for nigh on a year. He was you home yesterday, but he ain't here. So this is technically four songs, right? I have six written down. Yeah, there's there's a there's her man's been gone, which is just the barbershop opening. Then there's the crying town. Uh, we have remedy. I have <laughs> Ivor the engine driver. Which is a right. weird. Soon be home, and then you are forgiven. You are forgiven. You are forgiven. Let's see how long we can you say are that. Forgiven. That is the that has the uh, the soaring vocals. So, yes. Uh, well, again, you know, I don't think they've differentiated their voices much, so it's hard to tell, like, who is which character in this song. It's easy to think it's all one person talking to themselves, and it gets very disturbing unless you have the lyrics up to read. Which live they really do have, like, the characters down with. Yeah. Well, live. I mean, the rock and roll circus version. Yeah, I was I was gonna bring that up. I just watched it works that a lot better because this you can hear the splices and the edits, and it's a lot less impressive. Gratuitous. It just sounds like yeah, six like right minute there. and a half songs <laughs> cut yeah, really the, close um, together and not a full piece, which is yeah one of my my favorite part of uh, the Rolling Stones rock and roll circus of which the Who were a part. They do play this, um, you know, a quick one while he's away, is this uh, mini, mini rock opera. And I think it's Ivor the Engine Driver. He's like, Keith Moon, you know, they needed a kind of, you know, sort of like country galloping sort of sound. Yeah. So he just picks up his, his four tom, I think it was, and he puts it on its side on top of the snare and just starts playing the side of the drum. And, and you know, they're doing this live. I just yeah. thought, I thought, oh, wow, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. Isn't this... Isn't the story that the Rolling Stones rock and roll circus didn't come out for several years? Because yeah, yeah. the Rolling Stones were embarrassed by 
particularly the Who, but I mean. Oh well, there's oh, oh you mean a lot of yeah. There, there was a there was a lot of speculation about Taj that. Taj Mahal, everybody. Else. Yeah, yeah, Taj Mahal yeah. is great. They were really good. That you know, um, awesome. Uh, you know, um, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. John tank. Lennon. John Lennon does your blues. It's really good. You know, uh, yeah. Yoko was there. But, but there's a, there's a lot of um, <laughs> but I, I uh, you know there's a lot of sort of different stories about why it wasn't released and, and it, you know Rolling Stones themselves might not have had a whole lot to do with that. Yeah. They tended to um, well you know like a lot of bands it's like they were off doing other stuff while they left business matters like releasing movies to. Well, if I other people, if any of my <laughs> musical projects ever had a rock and roll circus type yeah. thing, and the Who showed up and did that, I would slink away. Yeah, I would. Jethro Tull was in that too. That oh, turned yeah. down my. All that, that was pre-recorded though. Was it? Yeah. yeah. Well, it was all kind of pre-recorded. Yeah. I mean, oh, you mean they lip-synced it? Yeah, they lip-synced it. Oh. I think they they arrived late. Oh, I see. Yeah. Tony Iommi in a big goofy hat on that one too. Yes. Hey. <laughs> But uh, but this this is a uh, uh, in in uh, you know my my old band the morning sickness uh, as a lot of bands do early on when we were playing you know you, you can't get gigs and um, you can't make money hmm. I wonder what that but would change <laughs> but uh, but uh, you know so th- there's this fantasy oh we'll do cover songs for money like, that's as just if supposed to be early that. on yeah 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 so we'll do some cover songs for money so so I said everyone come up with a list of songs they want to do a cover of. And Jeff came in with this, and, and I had never heard it before. I'm just looking, I'm like, this is a nine minute. <laughs> it's like, like I, I, part. I loved it. I loved it, but I was like, look, I'm the only one who will open his mouth on stage in this band. The rest of you, you know, you don't even do backy vocals. Sometimes you'll sing in practice, but you know, when it comes to live, you're nowhere near the microphone. How in the hell are we gonna do this when there's vocal harmonies all over? Yeah, and it's the main thrust of the song yes, too. I mean, if you get into learning, I've learned and played this song. I don't know if I've ever done it live, but that's the big. You need three people, at least three people who can sing well and can sing harmonies and stuff. Especially when they're singing cello, 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 yeah. cello, 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 cello. This is this we is can't afford a string section. Yeah. <laughs> the, the the bulk of this song is blues box noodle in A. Like you can pick up a guitar and and hum the melody in your head, and whatever you're find yourself noodling is probably how the song goes. But just doing that and nailing. Like the the harmony throughout is this is cool. I mean, oh, it is, and it's a strange story too. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Girl cheats on boyfriend. While boyfriend he's away, forgives her. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, that's it's, it. it's not a whole lot of conflict in here. No, but it, yeah, or, or drama, or um, but yeah, I, I, I mean, I've heard stories that this is in fact the prequel to Tommy, and that the the kid that the girl is pregnant with is Tommy or something I'm not sure he's called it Tommy's parents before yeah so oh yeah yeah. I, I wonder how much of that was retconned and how much of that was intentional well maybe he meant that in yeah right I, maybe he meant that in songwriting or do you mean that in, in songwriting yeah 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 that would make that, make sense that yeah that makes sense yeah because it is his first step towards this and he would continue to hack away at this sometimes should never have been encouraged <laughs> well Lifehouse you know He's still yet to quite crack that one. It, at least the movie version of Tommy's good, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and Margaret's finest performance. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know. First base. 
It's like, yeah. That's yeah. how I first that's saw Elton John. Another, that's a completely different, you know, a different album. But that, that's another. That's that's another one where I think it, it is. Uh, it's also telling. It's like, I think you know, on that Tommy, the songs are so good, and and that album is so odd. Yeah. You know, I mean, the one that released for public consumption, in that uh, the band is almost completely in the background. And, you know, it's like it's they're they're like in the pit of an orchestra or something. Yeah. I mean, you know, oh, metaphorically, and and uh, so it's like like you, you want to hear the Who? That's yeah. what, or that's what I want to hear. The, you know, any of the deluxe versions of Live at Leeds where they do like the abbreviated Tommy. Oh, they're incredible! Like the and just it's the realization that. Those four dudes on stage could pull off this kind of high production thing with a ton of great songs and do it better than any of the existing recordings of it, and that they did do that for a bunch of years is like really, but even really even on, something. Even on Tommy, they're they're playing everything, right? I mean, on that album, the bulk of everything. Probably, yeah. yeah there may be a yeah. few string musicians. Yeah, yeah, right. There, right. Stuff like that is on there, right? But it's yeah. oddly produced. It's yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, it's yeah. very songs from the elder. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, for me, music Uncle, from the elder. Yeah. Music from the elder. Yeah. <laughs> Uncle Ernie will always be Ringo Starr to me. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody ever brings up that album. Oh, well, well there's a reason for that. Ringo Starr. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever, man. Ringo's he's the best. He's so drunk, he slurs through everything. He's the, I'm he was being in character. <laughs> yeah, the Come on, didn't you see Caveman? He is a thespian of the highest order. The, the fact that he was buddies with with Entwistle and, and, and Looney in their prime and still walks the earth just shows you that <laughs> Ringo is a tough bastard. <laughs> he is bulletproof. Yeah. So the real question, if someone was going to start to get into the Who and they'd never heard them before, should they start with Tommy the movie or a quick one? Quick one, probably. For, for me, I saw Tommy the movie at 11. I didn't understand it. Yeah, would scare for Anne Margaret real quick. Understandable. Well, beans, chocolate, and soap. You can't argue with that combination. <laughs> I watched it recently. I didn't understand it. Um, I recently watched it while watching Evil Dead 2 at the exact same time, and they actually sync up like 10 Ooh. or 12 times. Oh, there's a conspiracy. Yeah, I don't recommend it. It'll make you mad. Does a quick Crazy. one sync up with Repo Man? <laughs> that is worth a quest. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll find out tonight. Yeah. I, but, uh, I listen to listen to live at Leeds. If yeah. you've never heard the Who before, that's what the Who sound like. That's what they're supposed to sound like. If you got to listen to a studio album, listen to like Quadrophenia or Who's Next. Well, I I think this this is by far my favorite part of this album. I lo- I love this. The the title. Uh, well, yeah, yeah. The, and there's the title, a much the better version track. of it. Yeah, there is. There's a better version of it. And and I just I I think it's a. I think it's brilliant. I think it's inspired, and and I also I also think it's another one of those things that that made me think, probably incorrectly, made me think that I could actually play music and put cool stuff together because it sounded like it really sounded like it was just you know four, four guys yeah, in a basement in a basement right and and I and it's uh, uh, creating all this complicated amazing right. random right right it's like like uh, you know why couldn't why couldn't I do that. I mean, it was almost—it was almost like—it uh, was almost like uh, they gave me permission. Yeah, I mean, you s- listen to ELO, and you're not like, "Oh, I could go home and <laughs> find 87 of my best string-playing cellist friends, and we're going to go out and be evil women." No, but this seems <laughs> reachable, plausible. 
<laughs> just call them on the telephone line. They turn to stone and, you know, <laughs> Mr. Blue Sky comes down and the whole thing is... Are there any ELO outliers? I, I don't know. I mean... I really hope not. Please no. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I've not bought any ELO albums, but I played the hell out of Jeff Lynne's solo album because I was a huge Traveling Wilburys fan, so I bought one album from each of them and Jeff Lynne only had the one and I oh. it it sounds like you know the traveling Wilburys without any personality because <laughs> yeah, yeah. he was the producer on that stuff wasn't oh he? Yeah, yeah, yeah yeah clearly yeah. Bob ain't gonna spend the time fussing with synthesizers <laughs> and <laughs> harmony vocals <laughs> yeah that was do they have any yeah um, but um yeah so is there there uh so um what do we think then? I think this is, a, you know, mid-level Who. They're, they've certainly had worse albums, but it is their strangest. Well, Casey we'll disagree. have to disagree. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But I'll take Kenny Jones over this record any day of the week. Okay. <laughs> well, that's saying something. I, I, this is this is another one of those albums that goes like for completists. Like if you want to get into other stuff and work backwards and be like, oh, that's where this came from. I I get it. It took that, me a long time to buy this record, and, <laughs> and uh, I, if you're a huge, I've listened fan to it of, more times this last week than I have in the last ten years. Well, there we, we appreciate your sacrifice. <laughs> <laughs> and you, I'll admit, I listened to it a little bit different this time and paid more attention to the production. and And sometimes the crappy production worked, and sometimes it didn't. Like, come on, uh, the see Iver, my the, way. The Ivor, the engine driver section, is supposed to sound like a train, and the cymbals are so overdriven that it just sounds like for a whole minute and a half of yeah. If you if you just watch the 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 Who and the Rolling Stones rock and roll circus perform this, it's a, a fine and capable substitute for this entire album. I mean, yeah, not that any one song should represent the whole album, but this one song is six songs and nine minutes long so it's it's close enough to half the album that you, this this song will do you it was written as filler which kind of cracks me up we got nine minutes left pete write a nine minute song well, there you go well i've got well the whole album is only like 31 minutes long or something yeah. it's like very one. 66 they kept their album short back then and even then, Roger couldn't come up with a second song. Come on. <laughs> he couldn't even make his one song go two minutes long. See pretty, my way, too. No, that's pretty amazing. We, we only need 30 minutes, and we got nine minutes left. <laughs> I, yeah, you haven't really written an album, then. You've got an EP there, guys. It kind of seems like uh, uh, Daltrey gets like the Jason Newstead treatment from this band, but has, like, since always. And it's funny that he's still in the band a lifetime later. Yeah. But yeah, he's pretty much like the guy that the rest of the band just like fucked with the whole time and didn't take very serious. And he's still that guy. Yeah. <laughs> Although apparently he was kind of a dick to Kenny Jones, who's always my favorite member of I, the Who. He talked about he, he he grew up in a family where where you know in a neighborhood where arguments were settled you know by getting in a fight. So people would disagree with him in the band, and so he'd beat him up. Brawl. <laughs> well, Dolce got kicked out of the Who for. Cold cocking Pete and knocking him out with one punch. 
Wow. So yeah, and he got kicked out for kicked like out. a week and he came crawling back. Please, please, please don't fire me. <laughs> All I can write is see my way. <laughs> well, that should probably well, wrap. Should have been a clue. Saved his life. There you yeah, go. I'd probably punch Pete in the face if I was in a band with him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. As much as I like him, I wouldn't want to have dinner with him. But I guess that'll wrap up this episode unless there's anything else we want to add. No, I didn't think so. So you're, you're all forgiven. We are all forgiven. Well, uh, uh, are there is there anything coming up with the Cadillacs? Uh, Tommy is going to be uh, starting production again. Oh, fantastic! Yeah, I don't know when, but uh, supposedly we have a venue. Well, that's a a start. Well, I figured that's a good place to start. Yeah, you, you, having it, you have to have a where to do it. Well, and last time I did, I got everybody ready and ready to get on stage, and I didn't have a stage yet. So this mm-hmm. time I'm going stage first, and then I'll get everybody involved if, after the fact. And there then, you go. Well, in August, there's going to be the Denver Art Rock Collective All-Star Big Extravaganza, I think, at, at uh, Streets of London. Streets of or London. Streets, Denver. Yeah. They're now branded. Because um, people got confused, kept flying to London to yeah, go to shows. Uh, uh-huh. <laughs> Wait, the Gons aren't playing here. It's <laughs> uh, a good joke, though. Yeah, the Denver Art Rock Collective. We, we laughed. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So look out for that. Yes. So, yeah, um, is there a place they can follow you online or just look out for announcements on the Denver? I'll, I'll make announcement on the Facebooks. Yes. If you're connected to the Internet, you will eventually find out about all the the Tommy and Denver Art Rock stuff that is coming your way. Um, and in that case, uh, I'm Scott Livingston. Logan Renard. Casey Elkington. Matthew Marr. Oh, we do have an email address, detoursandoutliers at gmail.com. If you have any ideas for good ELO albums we should cover, uh, send us an email. And I guess we'll... Get that out, man. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see you all next week when we try and figure out who this artist is. Dog.